I, I really am delighted to be with you. Uh, it's been a, uh, uh, important for conference for me spiritually. I bet it has for a lot of you guys touched in different ways. And uh, So let me encourage you uh, in a couple ways. Uh, if you get a chance to see Will or Julie or the staff and you feel that, just thank them for the volunteers for being here. And this church invests a lot in this. I mean, besides just the volunteers and the facilities financially. And so if you feel led to drop the pastor, just write to the pastor, Southeast Christian Church, Louisville, a thank you note. I, I'm just guessing that would be a real blessing to the pastoral staff to hear from you. And so I encourage you to do it. Uh, when, when my uh, editor was reviewing the slides, her name is Barb, she changed my, my, my uh, little academic things to include follower of Jesus as my first, uh, you know, uh, qualification, and then husband, you know. Uh, she has been my, uh, <clears throat> my best, well, my friend for, for uh, since we were five. I was going to tell you how long, but <laughs> since we were five, when we first met in kindergarten, and... Uh, and then we've uh, courted since we were uh, 16 and been married since we were 21 and parents since we were 25. And uh, we're now uh, we've been happily married. Uh, this November will be 20 years. We've been married 40. <laughs> but, but happily married 20. And we recently changed names. We became Pop and Honey. My dad was Pops, and his dad was Pop-Pop, and the person that named us was Anna. And for those of you yet who haven't found your spouse, or if you found your spouse you haven't decided to have children, have the grandchildren first. (laughs) They're so much more fun. Although, if you do choose to have children, you may want to use the parenting verse that, that Barb and I use. It was a wonderful verse. It's from Exodus, and it's "Thou shalt not murder." <laughs> and that was <clears throat> that was a good one. But after Anna Kate, along came uh, Sarah Elizabeth, and um, <clears throat> her name's kind of important because her father's name was Aaron Elizabeth. But well, we had three ultrasounds prenatally that showed little girl. And um, so we named her Erin Elizabeth. And when she was born, um, I looked between her legs and I thought, macroclitoris? And biggest genitalia, what is between her legs? And the, our, our, our physician said, Dr. Laramore, I think you need to go back to anatomy because she's a he. And three days later, we named him Scott. So, this has nothing to do with spiritual history, but, so, I didn't realize I had wounded my son, because as he would get uppity in his life, I'd say, Look, listen, young man, you know, if someone looks between your legs and doesn't see anything on ultrasound, you know, she's not really much of a man, and I caused a father wound. And I realized that recently, because he and his wife, Jennifer, were, uh, had lead a small group, and a ultrasonographer and, and her husband joined this small group. And uh, he was t- telling her, her his woes of ultrasonography and how it wounded him. And she said, oh, no, Scott. She said, I can tell you exactly what happened. And he said, what? She said, what they thought was a leg. <laughs> he immediately called his father. So my turnaround was buying the kids this T-shirt, which says, financial problems, not me, thanks to Grandpa. <laughs> and most recently saw them at a, at a special event, and that was, some of you followed my writings about our special needs child, Kate, our first child of our six children. And uh, Kate uh, is now 35, and she recently met Prince Charles. And so her daddy had the privilege of walking her down the aisle. It was the last time his eyes were dry 
that day, and there's Prince Charles. So that's a little update on our family. Some of you may have read the false advertising that this uh, talk was going to be in assessing and addressing the spiritual needs of patients. And, and we could do that if we had all day. But uh, talking with Will and, and Reverend McVeigh, uh, we decided instead to, to change it just to focus in on spiritual history. Because there's a large intervention of, a large spectrum of spiritual interventions that you can consider, uh, not just in healthcare, irrespective of, of, the, of the branch of healthcare to which you're called, but with neighbors and friends and, and colleagues. And in, in general, that spectrum can include ignoring spiritual issues with friends, neighbors, colleagues, and, and, and patients, and divorce spiritual content from the care that, uh, that you provide from, from, from health care. Now, I'll confess to you that that was my tact for uh, the first seven or eight, eight years of, of my practice life. It, it had never been modeled. It had never been taught. And I just didn't know how, how to do it. I remember the day that my partner and best friend uh, came, my practice partner came up to me and said, hey, don't we believe in sharing our faith? I said, sure. He said, how come we don't do that in our work? I said, that's a really, really good question. And we began to pray and, and think about it. And the next, perhaps the next step up the ladder is acknowledging that there, there is a role of religion and spirituality in patient care. And, and most of you, I think, would agree with that and understand that. It's just, how the heck do you do it? How do you fit it into to what you do? It's certainly an intervention of, of consulting with uh, Referring patients to, to clergy or pastoral professionals or counselors is not inappropriate, and it's certainly something that's, that's easy to do. And I'm sorry that came up early, but it's the one we're going to concentrate on today, which is inquiring about religious or spiritual beliefs, practices, and, and it's a spiritual history or a spiritual assessment. Beyond that, encouraging religious beliefs and practices among your patients, irrespective of their ilk or stripe. Uh, so faith flags, faith stories, faith prescriptions uh, can be used in practice. Praying for and with patients. And since HIPAA, we've got some new restrictions there, can be something <clears throat> that we can consider. And then perhaps the most intense and most difficult is providing spiritual counseling uh, <clears throat> to the patients that we see. If you're interested in, in that spectrum of of spiritual interventions. I've got really good news for you, and that is that Christian Medical and Dental Associations are developing a course not for doctors, but for all health professionals called Grace Prescriptions, Learning to Bring Your Faith into Your Practice of Healthcare. And that's in its beta phase of developing. It'll be tested one last time in Augusta, Georgia, University of Georgia in January, and any of you are welcome to come to that weekend conference. It'll be a CME conference. And then uh, at Asbury in February, uh, it'll be videoed. And then CMDA hopes to release the course in, uh, in the spring, hoping to make it Internet available in a variety of formats so that you as a facilitator, you don't even have to teach the thing. You can just facilitate it in a small group, uh, uh, be able to set, up, uh, set it up as you want. Maybe it's once a month for a year or once a week for a, a semester or a weekend conference or a day conference or something like that. So that should be available from CMDA. Today we're going to look at part of one of those modules, and it's the importance of a spiritual history to quality patient care. I'm going to make the case for you that you cannot provide quality patient care, evidence-based care, without a spiritual assessment. That the evidence and the recommendations are that we provide a spiritual history for most, if not all, of our patients. And I'll show you why that is, and we'll talk a little bit about how to do that. So here's just a quick poll. Suppose you had an attending, a supervisor, a colleague who said, who found out you were taking spiritual assessments and said, I think it's inappropriate, unethical, illegal, or whatever they say. So you could say, here's a couple of thoughts. I, you know, I don't know how to respond. Okay, thanks for advising me moron, or actually, I've been told it's part of quality care. So how many of you would say, I, I just don't know how to respond? Sure, that's, that's kind of where I was, you know, for a long period of time. Okay, thanks for advising me. I mean, you're, you're you know, as, as those working for those who were supervised, yeah. so there's a bunch of you say, yeah, that kind of be where I'm at. And actually, I've been told it's part of quality care. I don't have any idea why. 
but I think it's part of quality care somehow. So, well, let's take a look at that. I hope that by the end of our our time together that you'll be able to agree with number three. Hal Koenig is a research psychiatrist at at Duke, and uh, he wrote in an article, a review article last year on spirituality that was an ISR in psychiatry. The whole article is available online. But the purpose of a spiritual history or spiritual assessment is fivefold. The first is to learn the patient's background. It's not to push something. It's not to bring, uh, to collect spiritual scalps. It's, it's just to, to learn where are you in, in your spiritual journey and how can I join you there. So what's their background? Does their, do their religious or spiritual beliefs play any role in, in, in their coping and, uh, and or... Do their spiritual beliefs cause them distress? And I think I'm going to show you some data that's fairly shocking in that manner. Do their beliefs influence or conflict with decisions about health care? Just before the, the, our time together, I was talking with a medical educator who is in a hospital and uh, trying to bring spiritual histories into the hospital. And the surgeons went crazy. They went nuts. This is inappropriate. You should not do it. This is, you know, don't bring it in. And uh, my response to that would be, so you're telling me that you would want to operate on a Jehovah's Witness and not know that? Well, duh. Of, of course you want to know that. Why? Because there's a spiritual belief system that's going to intersect with your care. And if you decide to not know that information and decide to transfuse that patient, you will have the privilege of meeting their attorney. And perhaps explain your decision to 12 community members. <laughs> Duh. Of course you, you want to know. You want to know that. Number four, the patient's level of participation in a spiritual community. Is it supportive? Is it a source of conflict or is it a source of support for, for that patient? If nothing else, we're discharge planning. And where's that patient's support coming from? And are there any spiritual needs that might be present? I won't show you this data today, but there's survey data showing that the average hospitalized patient in America will name three spiritual needs that they have. And they all go unmet in their spiritualization, in their hospitalization. And it affects the cost of medical care and it affects readmission rates, which now with our Medicare patients, kind of a critical thing. Research shows that most healthcare providers, uh, understand or believe that spiritual well-being is an important factor. But most of us are reluctant to explore spiritual issues, and we report infrequent discussions on the issue. And even though we know that it's important, we don't do much in the way of referrals to, to chaplains or pastoral professionals. This particular data, Mark Ellis and his colleagues did it in Missouri. And then they, uh, as they surveyed the, the primary care physicians in, in that state. They were looking for reasons that people did not take a spiritual, uh, spiritual history. This data is about a little over 10 years old, but I think it's still probably representative, probably of what a lot of you in this room are feeling. And the first is lack of time. Like, I got so much to do. You're going to tell me something else I need to add? I was in a teaching practice for 16 years. We had medical students and residents with us every month. We had family medicine fellows who studied with us, and we produced community-based research. And at one time, somebody came out with a recommendation. I don't remember who it was or what it was. It just was my tipping point. I was just so tired of people telling me everything I had to do in a visit. So we took a pediatric population, we went through the national recommendations that existed and assigned a time to each recommendation, whether it was two seconds or two minutes. And do you know what the average pediatric well patient visit was going to take? What do you think? 162 minutes. Like, leave me alone. I'm busy. I'm busy. So, uh, 71% said that. A lack of experience or training Almost 60% said, I don't know how. No one's ever shown me or said anything about it. And then the third area was uncertainty. Now, those of you that do research know that you do pilots. And so when they did the pilot study, they, they didn't use the word uncertainty. They said, fear, are you afraid of? And, of course, all of the doctors said, well, not me. I'm not afraid. So they changed it and said, well, you're uncertain. said, well, yeah, I'm uncertain, but I'm not afraid. <laughs> so... 
uncertainty about taking a spiritual history, 59%. Uncertainty about identifying patients who desire spiritual discussion, 56%. And then, what the heck do you do if they say something? 49%. And it's just because the other 51% didn't think about that. Or they just said, well, yeah, what do you do when it comes up? So we've got our own resistances. And then there's academic opposition, which is fairly significant. I want to show you the formidality. Is that a word? How, how formidable this opposition is. I mean, people who d- don't believe, like those surgeons, you know, that they could pull these articles. There's New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, Archives of Internal Medicine, American Family Physician, Annals of Behavioral Medicine. Medicine all have articles saying it's inappropriate and unethical to incorporate spirituality into health care. Pretty impressive group of journal articles, right? Do you notice anything else in common with these journal articles? Hmm. 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 Whenever you see one opinion that's only justified in the literature by one author, it should raise a red flag. Why aren't more people talking about this? Well, uh, Richard Sloan... Great guy, nice guy, sincere guy, but sincerely wrong in this particular area. The director of behavioral medicine up at Columbia Presbyterian uh, published a book in 2006 called Blind Faith. And in that book, he makes his argument that religion and medicine should be kept separate. That's unethical to put them together. Here's what he says. It is dangerous for doctors to begin addressing the spiritual needs of their patients. And he outlines all of his reasons. And grace prescriptions will actually dissect each of those reasons and give you an academic answer for them. But just in summary, according to the most recent edition of the Oxford University Press Handbook of Religion and Health, they say, quote, Sloan has become the world's most vocal critic of the religion-health relationship. And in, in his book, Blind Faith, cynically and caustically elaborates his one-sided extremist views that are not evidence-based. So people can use his argument. It's just not an evidence-based argument that holds water anymore. <clears throat> the last time he appeared in the national literature was in 2009 in Time magazine. They did a special uh, edition of How Faith Can Heal. He was one of the three quote-unquote experts chosen uh, for that faith and healing forum. And so the, uh, the, the reporter says, what role does religion play in health and health religion? And, and health and religion, and Sloan answers, spirituality and religion play a substantial role in, help patients, in helping patients overcome discovery. But I don't think it's any business of medicine. A significant role. Uh, we have an intervention that plays a significant role in healing. But you should ignore it. I mean, I'm a GP, but I can understand that there should be a connection. So, so it says, I don't think it's the doctor's job to be involved in that other than to refer to a professional. So the reporter says, doctors should not be taking spiritual histories. Sloan says, nope, I don't think they should be taking spiritual histories. So... Is there an answer for that? Why, why should I take a spiritual history? Is there any evidence to support that? Is there any benefit to actually adding an intervention to, to my, my spiritual interventions? I'm going to just quickly run through five evidences for spiritual history. We'll talk about uh, three uh, spiritual histories you could consider, and then we'll interact a little bit, ask some questions. So patient desire, patient benefit, may identify a significant risk factor, may enhance health care, And because of these reasons, it's now and has been for over a decade considered a quality standard of care in most developed countries of the world, not just the U.S. Let's talk about patient desire uh, first. Bergen, psychotherapist, writes, with 70% of the population who view religious commitment as a central life factor, treatment approaches devoid of spiritual sensitivity may provide an alien values framework. This year, my 30th book is coming out. People say, you have way too much time on your hands. 
But my first book was for the Christian Medical Dental Association. It was co-written with Donald O. Methuen, and it was Alternative Medicine, the Christian Handbook. And it was an evidence-based evaluation of the 100 most popular herbs, vitamins, and supplements and the 60 most popular alternative therapies, everything from acupuncture to, to zen, and um, just evidence-based. But one of the surprises to me in researching that book was the testimony from the literature of the reasons that patients chose complementary and alternative medicine. And near the top of the list was that those of us in allopathic or routine or osteopathic health care avoided patients' spiritual needs. They were looking for people who, who were interested in helping that area. And guess where they found those health care professionals? In the complementary and alternative world. So Bergen says... For the vast majority of people to whom spiritual coping is critical, especially when they have a health crisis, not approaching their, their spirituality can, can provide an alien values network. He says a majority of the population probably prefers an orientation that is sympathetic or at least sensitive to a spiritual perspective. Now, you will say, well, what about those who don't have a spiritual perspective? Well, they aren't admitted to hospitals. At least in my 32-year experience, although I came close, I, I have the privilege of serving as a visiting professor at, at, in his image uh, residency. And so when I'm there, I round with the residents in the morning and then precept and help with research in the afternoons. And uh, so we were rounding one day, and the chief resident was a fellow from uh, Kazakhstan. In his, in his final year of, of training, and we were going through the ICU, and, and he said, this young man is uh, in this particular isolation room. Uh, is MRSA sepsis, a multi-organ failure. We just got him off the ventilator. He's doing great. Hooked up him out of the unit later today. Uh, you don't need to see him. He's doing fine. And, um, oh, oh, and he's an atheist, kind of interesting, he's an atheist. And I said, oh, I'd love to see him. <laughs> and Sasha said, well, why? And I said, well, because I think we can report him in the literature. We can do a case report. I love publishing. He's getting all, I'm getting all excited. He goes, kind of looks at me funny because he, you know, I'm from a little town in Colorado and in the mountains and, you know, not really academic. He goes, Dr. Laramore, um, we see MRSA sepsis all the time. <laughs> it's very common. But maybe you could report it like in a Colorado journal. But and I said, well, no, no, no. I don't, I don't want to see him for MRSA sepsis. He's an atheist. He's in the ICU. I've never seen one. So we walked in and introduced myself to him. And I said, the residents tell me that you're an atheist. I just want to ask you a quick question. I said, during your stay here, have you thought of, of God at all? He said, I quote, well, hell yeah. I talk to him every day. Shucks. <laughs> there went my case report. And my point is that when people become ill, they think eternal thoughts. And who meets them in those divine appointments? But you. You. We have this amazing privilege of walking through pe with people through some very scary stuff. It's not just our hospitalized patients. It's our outpatients that we see are in the rural clinics that, that, we, that we go to. Hatch writes, in general, the public appears to view and value spirituality as a central life factor, especially when they're facing illness, and desire healthcare professionals to inquire about beliefs that are important to them. Uh, McLean echoes that. He says, in general, the majority of patients would not be offended by gentle, open inquiry about their spiritual belief by physicians. Many patients want their spiritual needs addressed by their physician directly or by referral to a pastoral professional. So the patients want it. We just do a sucky job with it. And here's four sets of national database data from America. And if we look back to 1994, if you look at how many patients said, I've never had a healthcare professional ask me about my worldview or spiritual beliefs or spirituality. It was 80%. So then all this data starts coming out. You think we would get better, but you get to 1999, and now 85% say no one's ever asked. And then we look up to date in 2002, and 90% say no one's ever asked. 
And the most recent database of which I'm aware, um, <clears throat> which was McCord and, and Valerie Gil Gilchrist data, which was in 2004, now it's 91%. 91% of our patients say no one's ever asked. We really are doing kind of a crummy job. The patients desire this. That doesn't mean we do what patients desire. You know, I'm doing some tent making in an occupational health clinic, and I had a patient who came in uh, Wednesday before I left to come to the conference, and he desired a prescription of 180 opioids. <laughs> so we don't always do, do what our patients desire, but there is evidence of patient benefit, unlike if I had condescended to that particular request. So Dale Matthews, <clears throat> uh, internist at, at uh, Georgetown, when he wrote this, said, science has demonstrated that being devout provides more health benefits than not being devout. And if you look at the most recent Handbook of Religion and Health, the Oxford University Handbook that came out last year, of studies reporting a relationship between re religion and spirituality and mental and physical health. And by the way, there's now over 7,000 articles in the medical literature arguing uh, about or presenting the topic of spirituality and religion uh, in health. It's just exploded, the literature. You say, well, I haven't seen that much in my literature, which spread throughout the medical literature. So it takes these really smart guys that can look at the whole literature to see. But of the, the roughly 2,400 uh, either randomized, randomized trials or national databases, uh, about 1,600 of those studies report positive relationships between depth of spiritual health and physical and or emotional health. There's a, that's about 70% of the studies. About 500 of the studies, 22% know or mixed relationships. And about 9% of the studies, around 200 out of the, the you know, roughly 2,300 as of uh, 2012. Uh, show uh, a negative relationship. And I'll show you one of the most significant of those negative relationships. 4% of those are mental health studies, 8.5% are in physical health studies. So the bottom line is, for the vast majority of our patients, irrespective of where they are with their spirituality, it's beneficial for them and it's useful for us to know about it. Like any history item, it allows us to identify a risk <coughs> factor. So you know, in, in histories, we look for risks for morbidity and mortality of, of various types. And Levin says we've known for, and, and this was in 87, he wrote this, 1987. He said, we've known for decades, in 1987, that infrequent religious attendance should be regarded as a consistent risk factor for morbidity and mortality of various types, both physical and mental. Spiritual anemia uh, has... The, has risk on morbidity and mortality that's the equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes for 20 years. Now, you may not change all your smokers, but you kind of want to know that. And, and it may be that the guy with the sprained ankle, you see, that's not going to make a difference today. But it may be important down the line. Not every item of, of our history do we deal with every, that visit. But we do, we take histories to look for uh, things that might affect morbidity and mortality. And uh, I'm not going to go through all of this data, but we've, I've now developed for CMDA a one-hour teaching module on the faith help connection. What does the research say? So for any of you that are interested in more of the data, what is that connection between faith and health? That's now uh, <clears throat> available through, through CMDA. But I did want to show you this particular data before we get to some spiritual history items. And that is that... Uh, and, and there's only one study in the literature that, that I'm aware of, but to me this was just stunning data that religious struggle can have dramatically negative effects on our patients. So this particular study was a longitudinal cohort study that was done at Duke from 1996 to 1997. The goal was to assess spiritual struggle and then look at, at it was a multivariate analysis to look at age and gender and religious background and demographic data, social support, physical and mental health measures, and then look at all of that data. And the main outcome they were looking for was mortality over a two-year data, over a two-year period of time. 
So there are 596 folks that participated that were admitted to med surge or to psych, and uh, <clears throat> these were folks 55 years of age and older admitted at, at, to the Duke <clears throat> Medical Center. After controlling with multivariate analysis for demographic, physical health, and mental health variables, here's what they found, that higher religious struggle scores at baseline were predictive of a 6% greater risk of mortality over the following two years. In other words, if something... If there was a factor that you could address that would increase the mortality risk of your patients over the next two years for 6%, would you kind of want to know it? Well, yeah, you kind of would if you could do something about it. But it actually gets worse than that because if patients report that they feel alienated from or unloved by God or attribute their illness to the devil, then that was associated with a 19 to 28% increase in mortality. Now we're not talking 6%. Now we're talking between 1 in 5 and 1 in 3 patients. This is a significant factor. Uh, and so these were the most significant of those factors. If you wonder whether God abandoned you, in other words, I've asked him to heal me and he didn't. I may not even know him, but I asked him to heal and he didn't. Or I'm here because God's left me or forgotten me or forgotten me. Um, that was the group that had the 28% increased uh, risk. <clears throat> Those who question whether God loves me, I mean, if God loved me, why would I have this problem or why would I have had that accident uh, going on? That was a 22% increased risk. For those that decided, well, you know, the devil made me do this or the devil made this happen to me, that was a 19% risk. Those who felt punished by God for lack of devotion, 16% increased risk. And this is a significant item in, uh, when I visit in Tulsa. Tulsa is a very, one of the more religious communities, Tulsa, Oklahoma, in, in America, very evangelical and has a lot of charismatic influence. And one of those influences is the, the healing traditions and the healing uh, teaching. It's not atypical to have patients admitted to the hospital whose theological teaching has been that if you pray a certain way, God will heal you. And if he does not, either you did not pray as you should have prayed or what? There's sin in your life. Either way, it's your fault. It's a huge burden for patients to, to carry. And if you don't ask, you won't know they're carrying that. In this particular uh, study, these patients said they're not going to tell this to a chaplain or a pastoral professional because they're the people they're mad at or feel abandoned them. They will tell this, however, to their healthcare professional if asked. This is the first empirical study that I know of that, religi that identifies religious variables that increase the risk of mortality. Men and women who experience a religious struggle in their lives appear to be at increased risk for death even after looking at every other factor that they were able to identify. So Koenig writing in JAMA says this, <clears throat> such patients without their doctor's encouragement refuse to speak with clergy because they're angry at God and have cut themselves off from a source of support. Who can provide that support? You and me. You and me. Fourth reason spiritual history has evidence supporting it is it may enhance health care. I'll just refer you to one meta-analysis done by Dale Matthews and his colleagues. It was published in the Archives of Family Medicine over a decade uh, ago now, but the literature's only become stronger. But here's what they wrote. The empirical literature regarding the relationship between religious factors and physical and mental health status was reviewed. A large proportion, and we're talking plus 70 plus percent, a large proportion of the published empirical data suggests that religious commitment plays a beneficial role in preventing mental and physical illness, in improving how patients cope with mental and physical illness, and facilitating recovery from illness. Prevention is the, the weakest effect. It's there, but it's the weakest effect. Facilitating recovery from illness is very strong. And all of the surgical literature, it doesn't matter if you look at gynecologic oncology or cardiovascular surgery, and even, nobody's standing so you won't faint, even orthopedists have studied this <laughs> and found it effective. And so, uh, so recovery from illness, uh, and then, but most importantly, religious and spiritual factors affect coping either positively or negatively, in coping with mental and 
physical illness. So they conclude this. The available data suggests that practitioners who make several small changes, not big changes, not a lot of time, but those who make just several small changes in how patients' religious commitments are broached in clinical practice may enhance healthcare outcomes. When they submitted their uh, article, they didn't say may enhance healthcare outcomes. They said will enhance. And Marge uh, Bowman, who was the editor of Archives at the time, said, now we're going to put may or we're not going to publish it. So they put, they put may. So we've got data that, that can affect prevention, coping, and recovery. If we had a pill that did that, it would outsell Viagra. <laughs> Not by much. <laughs> so, because of these reasons, it's now become a standard of, of care. And so, starting way back with the American Psychiatric Association in 1989, going all the way through the 90s, every major medical and nursing uh, professional group uh, uh, codified or or recommended that, that patient spirituality be recognized. Uh, in the uh, uh, 2010 article, it said nearly 90% of medical schools and many nursing schools in the U.S. include something about religion and spirituality in the curricula. It's also true to a lesser extent in the United Kingdom and Brazil, the only other two countries from which we have data. So spirituality and health increasingly being addressed in American and nursing training, in medical and nursing training, as part of quality patient care. And most important for those of you in the U.S. is the, uh, the recommendation of the Joint Commission. Now, this is without Joint Commission accreditation. A healthcare um, institution or organization cannot receive Medicaid, Medicare or government funding without Joint Commission approval. And they now have a recommendation for a spiritual history, a spiritual assessment. This is for long-term care, home care, behavioral care, whether it's inpatient or outpatient behavioral care, and all hospital admissions, including ER admissions. And they say this, the spiritual history, quote, should at a minimum determine the patient's denomination beliefs and what spiritual practices are important to them, not what spiritual practices are important to you, but what spiritual practices are important to them. Why? The Joint Commission says this information would assist in determining the impact of spirituality, if any, on the care and services being provided, and will identify if any further assessments are needed. Koenig goes so far in his review article in ISR in Psychiatry to say, so what would I recommend, recommendation-wise, in terms of addressing spiritual histories? First and foremost, health professionals should take a spiritual, a brief spiritual history. This should be done for all new patients on their first evaluation, especially if they have serious or chronic illnesses. And when a patient is admitted to a hospital, nursing home, healthcare agency, or other healthcare setting, he says this: It is the healthcare professional, not the pastoral professional, not the chaplain. It's the healthcare professional who's responsible for doing this two-minute screening. I'm going to show you how you can make it a 15 or 20-second screening. Simply recording the patient's religious denomination, whether they want to see a chaplain, uh, the, the procedure in most hospitals today is not taking a spiritual history. So what can you consider? And there's bunches of them available. And, and for those of you that are obsessive compulsive, there are some with 100 and 200 questions. And knock yourself out. But I don't have time for that. I don't even have time for the 25 and 30 question ones. So when I come to literature, I look for ones that have three or four questions. Now, spiritual history fits for me best in a social history. I'm asking about tobacco and alcohol and spirituality and, and seat belts and guns and you know, whatever you ask for uh, in, 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 uh, in social history. So the most recent affirmation of spiritual history occurred in the American Family Physician last year, an article on the spiritual assessment. And they uh, published, those authors published what they call the open invite, a method or technique of spiritual history. They say the open invite is a patient-focused approach to encouraging a spiritual dialogue. It's structured to allow patients who, who are spiritual, which the vast majority of our patients are, to speak further. It kind of opens a door, if you would, to allow them to express their thoughts if they wish to or to opt out if, if they wish to. It's, it's fine. The tool provides questions that allow uh, the physician, because this was an article written for physicians, to broach the topic of spirituality. First of all, it reminds us as healthcare professionals that our role is just to open the door. 
It's the patient has to choose if they're going to walk through that door or not. And then secondly, they recommend that you have a mnemonic available so you can easily remember what questions to ask. And so they talk about the FICA mnemonic, the HOPE mnemonic, and the GOD mnemonic, and I'll show you those very, very quickly. So the open is just as part of your social history. If this is something you're new to or uncomfortable with, to just say, hey, can I ask you a little bit about your faith background? You're talking about cigarettes and alcohol and drugs, and you mind if I ask you about your faith background? Just opens the door. We don't do this anymore. I've not done this in 15 years. I just ask the questions. The reason was no one ever told me to open the door. I said, just ask the questions. And so we started asking. We didn't ask our nurses or medical assistants to do the physicians in our group started asking. And why did we ask them? Because we thought people were going to go really freaky, weird on us asking those questions. In fact, we even had a little paragraph where we were prepared to, if someone freaked out, to say, well, you know, the research shows that there is a relationship between physical and spiritual health. And so because of that, we just, you know, never used it. Patients didn't even furrow their brows. And so I was meeting with my mentor. I've talked to you in the past about mentoring and my my mentor, dairy farmer, Bill Judge, still my mentor after 25 years. And we were having breakfast at Joni's Cafe one morning, and I said, Bill, listen, I'm doing this spiritual history stuff, and no one is even, you know, concerned. They're not raising their, any concerns at all. And he said, did you think they would? And I said, absolutely. And he said, why? I said, because they're like really weird questions. And he goes, um, you guys ask lots of really weird questions. <laughs> Well, I, I didn't laugh. I got defensive. I said, like what? He said, well, like, and he's in his 60s at this point. He said, last year, you know, I came in, and, and Jane and I have been married 40 years. And Tish, my nurse at the church, Tish said, how many sexual partners have you had the last year? He said, I had to think whether it was zero or one. <laughs> As a physician in my 30s, I did not understand that response. I now do. But that's, that's another topic. For It may explain the 20 years of happy marriage, but, it, but that's, that's separate. So can I ask about your faith background? And then, if there's openness, then be prepared to ask some questions. There's several listed in your handout. This is not a technique. You don't memorize. It's just... Find some questions you're comfortable with. And let me just give you a few from the literature. The faith mnemonic, uh, F-A-I, excuse me, the FICA mnemonic. There is a faith mnemonic, but the FICA mnemonic, uh, the F part faith. You know, do you have spiritual beliefs that help you cope? Uh, if the patient answers no, consider asking, what gives your, your life meaning or hope? Particularly important for patient, cancer patients. It may not be such a big deal for someone with a plantar work, right? The I, importance. Have your beliefs influenced how you take care of yourself in this illness? The C portion, community. Are you part of a spiritual community or have you been in the past? If you are part, is their support important to you at all? If so, how? And then address. How would you like me to address these issues in your health care? I'm not here to push something on you. I'm here to find where you are in your spiritual journey and love you where you're at. And walk with you the next step in that journey, knowing that a journey towards trusting Christ involves many, many steps. M-A-N-Y-M-I-N-I. And as a healthcare professional, we can be one of the 16 to 25 people that impact someone's journey to Christ. We don't have to be all of the links, but we shouldn't be the missing link. And we can, with very, very few words, have significant impact. And you have to look no farther than the seatbelt literature or the tobacco recidivism literature to see that very few seconds of encouragement can have profound impacts on every patient, no, but upon many patients. The hope history, uh, H-O-P-H is what source of hope, strength, comfort, meaning, peace, connection do you have? The O, organized religion. Are you part of religious or spiritual community? Does it help you? And if so, how? The P of the hope is personal spirituality or practices. Not just is this a formal religion, but do you participate? Does it have personal meaning to you? And effects on care. Is there anything I need to know about your spiritual belief system? Or is there any way that I can help you uh, in, when it comes to your medical care? Now, four questions are kind of long for me. I told you I have <clears throat> some IQ deficiency. And so I looked for the longest time for three questions and came up with one that really helps me called the God 
questions. And it's a three-question questionnaire, and just helps me remember to ask about, about God. And so the, the G or God is a relationship with God, or you may want to say is religion or spirituality important to you. Now, it's, remember these are history questions. You ask someone, you know, do you use tobacco products? If they say yes, you may want to follow up. If they say no, we say, have you ever? They say yes, you may want to follow. If they say no, move on. You know, you've answered the question. So same thing with these questions. Is a relationship with God <clears throat> something that's important to you or not? And in, like I, one of the clinics I'm working at now, we have a little paper chart. And so I have the G.O.D. questions in my little, little history section. But I'll actually use a, a little diagram on the bottom where if someone says, well, yeah, kind of. I'll say, okay, on this side of the page is your relationship with God is really far away, really, really distant. And this is like your best BFF, you know, or BFE, best friend for eternity, right? <laughs> and so, like, where are you? Why do I do that? Because the literature shows, for example, with depression analysis, if people, you ask people about how their depression is doing, they're doing that on a 1 to 10 scale, or pain analysis on a 1 to 10 scale. They can become remarkably close, just with that little diagram, to what formal assessment shows. And it gives me sort of a picture of where they are. How are you doing with... With God, the others is, are you part of, or have you ever been part of a faith community? Is that something that's important to you? If yes, how often do you go? How supportive uh, are they? And the D is do. What can I do to assist incorporating your beliefs into your cares? Or anything I can do to encourage your, your faith is, is, is something that's important to me. I think it's important for you to know that if something's important for me, and if you would like at any point in our care, I'd be happy to pray with you or, or for you about about these issues and see how they respond. In 31 years, I've had three patients say no to, to prayer. Is it okay if I pray with you at the end of visits? One was a woman uh, who I saw about two years ago who had been systematically abused physically and emotionally by a pastoral professional for years. She was not interested in prayer. Thank you very much. But she told me that. And um, I, I told her thank you for trusting me with some very um, some terrible information. I now pray for her every visit. It's been two years. And then there were two uh, women who came from Southeast Asia who had just immigrated into the country, and they did not want me to pray for them. And the reason was because in their uh, village, they had been taught that Christians eat Buddhists. Kill them, cook them, and eat them. And so I think they were wondering if I was going to say grace before... <laughs> No, I don't. In the handout, our time's almost up. In the handout, there's a bunch of other, the spiritual history, the faith history, the CSI memo history for those of you TV fans, the, the American College of Physicians, American Society of Internal Medicine History, and Dave, Dave Larson's history. So to finish up, don't be pushy, but don't ignore uh, being pushy. Professional problems can occur when well-meaning health professionals, faith puts it push a patient opposed to discussing religion. However, Post says, rather than ignoring faith completely with all patients, most of whom want to discuss it, physicians might ask a question to discern who would like to pursue it and who would not. So assessing and integrate patient spirituality into the healthcare encounter can build trust and support, the literature says, uh, can build trust and rapport, broadening the physician-patient relationship and increasing its effectiveness. But most of all, the spiritual history allows us as followers of Jesus and as Christian health professionals to find out where our patients are in their spiritual journey. It allows us to see where God is already at work and join him in his work. If you'd like to read more about spiritual interventions in the workplace, uh, I've written a book called Workplace Grace, and it's also a small group series that you can do at Sunday school or small groups uh, So, in the workplace and in neighborhoods. And of course, the saline solution how do you be salt and the right solution with every patient you see is still available from CMDA. Grace prescriptions will be out this spring. It's designed for small groups, for, for pre, pre-grads, for, for uh, graduate students, and for practitioners. Uh, it's going to have, right now, it looks like 13 modules. So are spiritual interventions ever appropriate in clinical care? What's the case, ethical, legal, moral, and evidence-based case for spiritual interventions in clinical care? Um, what's the importance of spiritual history to quality care? We've talked about that today. 
understanding the barriers to spiritual care, understanding the process of spiritual care. How do you earn the right to be heard spiritually in health care? Very practical how-to modules on how to use faith flags, faith stories, and faith prescriptions in practice, irrespective of where you are worldwide. How do you share your own personal faith story, a very powerful story in, in patient interactions? How do you deal with the reality of time? Is that a big deal? Yeah, you bet. How do you deal with that? How do you share the good news in a medical situation? How do you share the gospel? Maybe not as a harvesting tool, but even as a, as a cultivating tool. And then praying for and with patients. And in Grace Prescriptions, not only will we discuss the theory, but you'll practice each of these and you'll leave the... You'll leave Grace Prescriptions uh, encouraged, equipped, and enabled to bring, uh, to bring uh, your spirituality to your work. There are a, a variety of modules available, long one-hour modules that CMD will have available. So what's the connection between faith and health? What's the research say? Are spiritual interventions appropriate in clinical care? Uh, the importance of spiritual history? There's a one-hour module for that. And then dealing with the reality of time and building a spiritual network. Those are all going to be available. The handout, the presentation this morning is a little bit different than what's in your handouts. So if you drop me a line, waltlaramore at mac.com, I'd be happy to send you this presentation. You can adapt it. You can use it. You can steal it. It is yours. And I've got two gifts for you before we finish. One is I'm now doing a, uh, a medical news you can use for Christian radio stations internationally, little one-minute pieces each day, evidence-based pieces on medical news. And you can uh, sign up for those at drwalt.com slash blog. Uh, don't do it this morning. The site's been hacked. But, but you can sign up for that if you want. They'll come to your email or Twitter or Facebook uh, twice a day. You can decide if you want to read that story or not. But the one I really want to commend to you is called Morning Glory, Evening Grace, Twice a day, topical Bible devotions with hyperlinks to biblical sources. This is the, one of the only devotionals written in history that doesn't tell you what a man or woman thinks. It's only God's word about topics. And it's available at devotional.drwalt.com. Personal application to talk about. And our time is gone. I'm going to honor that. But I'm going to be available up front if any of you would like to chat a little bit. I would be happy to do that. Before we end, can I pray for you? So, Father God, I lift up my brothers and sisters who are here to a person because they follow you and they love you and they want to bring you into their profession. They want to profess you before those who come to them. And I pray, Lord, I pray, dear Father, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would equip and enable them to bring you into each divine appointment. That when they see their first, next first patient, that they understand that appointment was not made a week ago or a month ago, but it was made before time. And may they enter their exam arena, the exam room, asking, God, what are you doing here? And how can I join you? And so for the fruit that you're going to bear in and through the lives of each person here, I thank you now in faith. And in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for your attention.